Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the film Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King. This is a real mystery that's unfolding this morning, and it all has to do with the death of the CEO. Here he is here, uh, Gerald Cotton. He's the founder of Quadriga CX. Today, we're talking to director Luke Sewell. Gerald Cotton was the head of Canada's largest Bitcoin exchange, While on his honeymoon to India, Jerry became ill and died of complications from Crohn's disease. His sudden death left the exchange in the lurch because no one else had the password that controlled hundreds of millions of dollars in cryptocurrency. But the circumstances of his death and the loss of their money made investors ask the question, did Jerry fake his demise to either cover substantial losses or to abscond with an untraceable fortune? In the Netflix documentary, Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King, we hear from investors, journalists, regulators, and conspiracy theorists who ask whether Jerry took a fortune to his grave or took it on the run. Either I know a guy who screwed up and lost a quarter billion, or I know a guy who pulled off one of the greatest crimes in history. And I'm joined by director Luke Sewell. Luke, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. How did you first hear about the story of Gerald Cotton? So I, uh, it was actually quite big in the news, but I didn't hear about it immediately when the, when the story first broke. Uh, the first time I heard about it was through Minnow Films, who um, I think they found a, an article in Vanity Fair and there were some other press articles covering the story. And they approached me um, and said, look, you know, we've, we've found this story um, we think it's quite good. We're developing it. Would you like to come on board? Could we attach you as a director and see if we can get it greenlit by Netflix? And so I, I saw the story. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, I saw incredible sort of potential for it and uh, signed up. And, you know, the rest is, is history. Did you see yourself as someone who was going to tell the story of the hunters or someone who would be the hunter of the story? Um, I kind of, so primarily I saw it as as a film that was very much following this online investigation. 
you know, so telling the story of this investigation that sprung up in the wake of of his uh, of, of Jerry's suspicious death. Um, and I guess I kind of saw, you know, because a lot of it, ha- I mean, there was obviously journalists who were investigating it as well, but a lot of it was kind of playing out in these these um, sort of relatively shady, secretive forums online. And I I kind of loved that. I, I, I find the internet and I find the, the online world really fascinating. And I saw a kind of real potential to sort of tell this kind of laptop or computer or desktop-based thriller that really brought the audience into that, into that world, close to the action and sort of along for the ride, really, with the, with the people who were looking into this. Um, so, yeah, so that primarily that was that was the that was the, the kind of vision for the story, really. Were there ever moments, though, when someone told you about a clue or you learned about a clue and you were like, yes, but did you ever look into this? A hundred percent. I mean, it was just insane. I, there were so many rabbit holes. I mean, it was, you know, through the course of research and through the just going through, I mean, I, I work very closely with an amazing producer, Zoe Hutton, and just going through the Telegram channels, going through Reddit and looking at all these messages, all these theories was, it was just kind of endless. And yeah, I mean, we had loads of questions about, uh, about you know, you know what happened. And also at the time when we, when we kind of took up the story, it hadn't really resolved. There were still a lot of questions, you know, the, the, there was still this idea that they were going to exhume Jerry's body. Um, I don't think at that point the Ontario Securities Commission had, had sort of got involved and, you know, kind of come out with their report that detailed, like, you know, forensically what had ha- happened with the money in Quadriga. So there was a sense of, you know, gosh, what can we find out? And along the, you know, along the journey, you know, these various things happen and, 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 you know, we sort of tell them in the in the story and hopefully bring it to a, you know, a sort of um, a, a satisfying kind of payoff. So the scam obviously involves elements of high finance, tech, uh, cryptocurrency, blockchain. It's a complicated, convoluted concept that is impossible to understand unless you're really into it. You're <laughs> visual and a visual medium. How did you decide to tackle that in a way that like the average viewer who's not steeped in this stuff would get it? How did you like solve that puzzle? Yeah, I mean, it was quite intimidating because I, I don't know about that world. I didn't know about that world at all. And I didn't know anything about crypto. I sort of bought some crypto for the first time promptly sort of lost it you know it went down uh, so you know kind of pretty pretty quickly uh, that was my main sort of takeaway really uh, was that I wasn't really going to be one of the lucky people just like Jerry exactly exactly so I instantly felt you know that okay you know that you know so I don't know it was it was um it was a very a, a new world to me very complicated very techy um, and it's also a subject that people are quite uh, people can be quite baffled by easily, you know, because it is complex and it feels like it's this nerdy, techie kind of thing. But I just wanted to keep it very simple. You know, it's like we 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 delved into the tech as little as we had to, in a way, just to kind of tell the story and and just explain it in as sort of in layman's terms as much as possible. Um, and in terms of the kind of visual approach to the film. I was quite, there was something about the whole tone of the film, you know, it was, in, a, in many ways, it's, you know, it's a cautionary tale about the internet, it's a cautionary tale about, you know, virtual money, virtual currency, and also conspiracy theories, and the allure of conspiracy theories, and the kind of dangers of these, these sort of forums, in a sense, that can amplify some quite crazy sort of ideas. And so visually, I really wanted, and in sort of collaboration with with my DOP, Tim Cragg, we really wanted to create a very heightened look to the film that felt super stylized, that kind of led into that almost 
kind of unreal, no one was quite who they seemed kind of vibe in the film, you know. Yeah, you had those low-lit rooms, backlit by computer screens. You know, you had, uh, you know, one of your characters at the beginning was playing a virtual game for exercise, which was really cool and yeah. weird. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. Time. It was amazing. It was amazing when he told us, because we were, we were sort of like, you know, he was, you know, with these things, it was very, because it was very stylized. You know, we were sort of, um, he, he was telling us about how he was, I think he brought it with him. And he was just like, he was, he was just dancing, I think, off, off camera. And we were like, that's amazing. You know, brilliant. Let's get some of that. And, you know, he was, he was very up for it and it looked cool. And it kind of was a great, almost it was a great introduction to that world, that kind of world and that kind of, you know, character that inhabits it. Yeah. I mean, you talked about this being a cautionary tale about, you know, a conspiracy theories in that world. To me, it's also a cautionary tale about like money, because I think that that the story here about cryptocurrency is also the story about money. Like it's not real. Right. It's a construct. This currency is a is a, a made up thing. Yes, it has value, but it doesn't just like money. Right. Yes. Isn't that kind of what this is all about? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, totally. It's like it's it's a totally cautionary tale about money and about how and sort of FOMO and the idea of getting caught up in something, the idea that you can make money easily. You know, I have absolute Mm. sympathy for those guys that lost that. I mean, Tong, you know, lost, you know, I mean, it's devastating for him and uh, QCX Int and Ali, you know, and many, many others that lost their money. I mean, you know, it's a real tragedy for them. And I have very deep sympathy for them. But there was very much a sense with those kind of things that you are playing with fire, yeah. you know, and yeah. it is, you know, particularly cryptocurrency, you're right, it's not backed by gold and it's just so open to corruption and scams left, right and centre and, you know, you just got to be kind of careful. You know, people were making lots of money out of it, but for all those people that were making lots of money out of it, there were people that lost a lot of money as well. Yeah. Now, there are people in the crypto world who are reluctant to talk or give their identities. And then you have one person in the film whose face is obscured by what seems to be a digitally inserted avatar of a mask of some kind. I guess it's a fox, right? It is indeed a fox. I thought it was a panda, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> I've, I've read other people be a panda. I've seen squirrel. Um, I think like uh, there were some points where I saw there were some shots where I thought it almost looks mouse-like or like a hamster. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tell me about that choice. So what, how'd you make that choice? So actually, so what happened was we, um, it's actually not, it, it's not digital. It's a physical mm-hmm. cardboard mask. Yep. Um, yep. But it had a kind of polygon thing that looked quite digital. And I quite yeah. like that. Um, it's like Minecraft, right? Yeah, like yeah. Mine, yeah. It looked off the computer world, but it was very analog, you know, so I kind of like that. And um, it, uh, so it came about, originally I was going to do, I was going to actually just, uh, he was going to be in a hoodie, you know, to obscure his face and we'd sort of, you know, shoot him in the shadows. But, um, I was like, I was a bit sort of uncertain about that. So I was like, okay, maybe do something more interesting. So I found this, this Fox mask, like, this is the one, but it felt too crazy. So I kind of, I lost my confidence with it. And actually, um, the guys at Netflix were great. I mean, they're brilliant to work with Johnny and Kate, who are the commissioners of, uh, look after features at the UK office. They were like, um, you know, have, have more fun with it. So then I sort of found the confidence to go, okay, I've got this Fox mask. And they were like, great. So we went with it. And I think it's like a testament to the, um, world that we created but he doesn't feel he feels very much of that world I've been trading on Quadriga in kind of drips and drabs in 2018 but unfortunately over time it kind of accumulated to the point where uh, I probably had more funds on the exchange than I was strictly comfortable with um, you know so at the end of the day when Quadriga went down 
that was a significant sum that was, you know, north of six figures type sum. I suspect he might be Australian, though. I'm just going to throw it out there. I, I cannot, <laughs> I can either confirm or deny, Rebecca. Either that or that's a really good digital trick that you threw on the voice there. <laughs> um, you have these uh, money transfer shots, these chat rooms. You have all this B-roll of just, like, text. Were you uh, worried at all about, like, losing some of the human element of the story? Because it really is a really human story, a lot of pain at the heart of this thing. Yes, totally. I mean, it was a tricky, you know, there was a lot about the film that were difficult, you know, difficult challenges to sort of overcome in terms of how you tell that story and how you you kind of bring emotion into it. Um, I was, it's a fine balance. I mean, I ultimately kind of, you know, I, I hope that the stories of the, of the users sort of, you know, sp- spoke for themselves and you would feel for them and also be caught up in the journey that they were caught up in. It, you know, it wasn't a sort of, you know, you always want someone to be, you know, to ha- have a connection with your contributors. And I, I hope I sort of pulled that off. But I guess I was worried about being slightly lost in the kind of more techie side. So it was a difficult balance to strike. But hopefully, hopefully we got there. But I also think that a big part of the heart of the film for me has a lot to do with the journalism story. There's like a big like uh, Woodward and Bernstein kind of detective like journalism component to this that I really think adds a great deal to the story because you kind of get like you have the, the the victims and then you have like the hunters of people who are trying to get to the truth. And to me, both of those things together like really, really work. So what was it like working with those journalists? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's really nice that you say that. I mean, totally. I think that it was cautionary and those online worlds can be very toxic. And it obviously went to incredibly dark places that were like out of control and not nice. And but that is the nature of some of those worlds. And it was an important component of the story. And that's why the journals were so, you know, um, Alex and Joe were so crucial in terms of um, contrasting the sort of more speculative um, kind of crazy rabbit hole theories in the online world with actual kind of old fashioned, dogged, amazing journalism. According to some data that we got, $1.2 billion was transacted through Quadriga that year. And Quadriga was making money off of all of these transactions. I reached out to Quadriga. I emailed Jerry and I said, hey, you know, I'm reporting a story for the Globe and Mail. Users are saying they can't get money out of the exchange. And can you kind of tell me what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it was great working with them and they did a huge amount. I mean, it was absolute, I mean, it was a, it was incredible to hear their side of the story and what they'd been through and what they'd done. And I have nothing but utter respect for them. And being able to place them alongside those guys, I mean, the film really needed it because that mm. sort of helped you understand what the point of the film was, you know, yeah, which yeah. was like, you know, this this kind of whole conspiracy world is just a bit out of control, you know. So one of the victims that we meet is uh, Tong Zhou, who invested his life savings in Bitcoin through Quadriga. Now, what's interesting to me was that, and I, I don't want to make light of it, but he just did it sort of to be cheap because he didn't want to spend what really was $8,000 to transfer that money, right? Because he would have yep. spent 2%. And he was like, I don't know if you know, but 2% of $400,000 is a lot of money. I'm like, it's $8,000. And he ended up losing all of that money. Uh, and that feeling of dread when he's like, I kept looking every day, every week, and it was a month and then two months. Um, but he kind of represents that second wave of investors that like FOMO, um, who like sort of sees himself missing this wave. He obviously took out 
got a bunch of loans first, lost that money. Um, but this wasn't that kind of transaction. This was just a simple money transfer transaction. That struck me as just incredibly like, I know ironic isn't technically the right word, but like an, a very difficult way to lose all that money. What was supposed to be such a simple transaction, right? Yeah. I mean, I, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, um, I can't even imagine what that must be like. And you could see that it would obviously profoundly affected Tong and, you know, he deeply regretted it. Like who could have predicted that the CEO would die mysteriously under mysterious circumstances in India? You know, he, he was the only one that had the keys to the wallet, but who can you really believe? It's, it's a really depressing and shocking thing to happen. The next steps is to, um, I think he just he still trusted crypto as a as a yeah. as a you know and a, and he trusted Quadriga. I mean, a lot of the guys would say like it just seemed very legit. You know, it's Canadian. I think at that time, a lot of crypto exchanges they would say were based in other countries that they were more suspicious of. Um, but it was like hey, Canada. Nothing ever happens in Canada. You know, it's kind of it's 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 safe. And and so and obviously there was this premium. So he saw another opportunity to make some money. So again, it comes back to that cautionary tale of, yeah. of just, you know, being sucked in by this kind of stuff. But no, it's, I mean, yeah. What set the image of Quadriga apart? I mean, I know what set Quadriga apart in real life, but what set the image of it apart uh, from other exchanges? I think that was it. I think it was, it was Canadian. Um, I, I don't know to what extent. It was nice. <laughs> it was kind of nice. It, it was sort of, I think they, they had, um, they had FinTrack registration, which I think was a, a sort of a, a regulatory body in Canada had, they, they'd managed to apply for that and, and get that. So it had a variety of things that gave it this air of, of legitimacy. Um, I'm not sure how many, People, I mean, I think people on the scene, obviously, who were very supportive of it, which is a big part of why these, I think, exchanges do well and, you know, the scene promotes itself. I think a large people, a lot of people on that crypto scene who knew Jerry very much believed in Jerry um, and saw him as a bit of a kind of poster boy. And he was very much in their own image, which I think helped in terms of their ideas of, you know, who, who they felt they could trust. And and so I think those kind of factors at play. But I mean, a lot of the investors, I mean, I don't think they knew who Jerry was, but it was very much like, it's got this, it seems legit. And also, you know, a lot of guys were doing this kind of thing called arbitrage. So they were buying currency in one country, selling it in another country and using Quadriga to do that. And I think they were attracted by the rates. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Well, let's talk about the, um, the the meat of the story itself, like what makes it juicy, right? So here's the Sparknotes version. Jerry's nine-figure Ponzi scheme is unraveling. He changes his will. A couple weeks later, he's in a country he wasn't planning to go to or that people don't know he went to, where he suddenly dies from a chronic but manageable disease. After his funeral, it's learned he was the only one with the passwords to hundreds of millions of dollars in untraceable currency. Does that not sound like the ultimate exit scam? It sounds uh, totally like that. I mean, particularly as the, the, yeah, the exchange, it sounds so convenient, so convenient because the exchange was having issues before he, he died. So it just, it's like, it's set up perfectly for this idea of hang on a minute. Yeah. I mean, you can see why it's catnip for conspiracy theorists, right? Absolutely. So many kind of weird things that just fell off 100%. So there are a lot of questions about Jerry's death while he was traveling in India. Um, he claimed that he, he was there to establish an orphanage. Have, did you see any evidence that he was actually establishing an orphanage while he was in India? So I think for a long time, people were trying to work that out. And yes, we did ultimately find that he did. 
So he did. The orphanage did exist. Um, and I think that it was quite it was I think the story was sort of blown up like that they were building this from the from the sort of ground up. I think they'd made a donation basically as part yeah. of their, their their kind of marriage. Yeah. Uh, but it did it did exist. It ultimately did exist. But it sounded so weird at the time because it was like, oh, gosh, this is perfect image of this amazing guy. It was so almost make believe. Yeah. So what about this idea that it took over a month for his death to be announced? Yeah, I mean, again, that was just something that that everyone was very kind of, um, you know, suspicious of, and like what was happening in that time, and you know, it just, it just, again, it was, it was just, it just seemed kind of odd because what was also happening were was that people, there were people who actually ended up not being in the film, or we, 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 they, they didn't want to be in the film or whatever, but you could see from on Telegram and some of the chats that we had with other people, there were there were people who invested their money after Jerry had passed. Hmm. And so had they closed it before or announced it earlier, those people wouldn't have lost their money. So there was a huge amount of resentment about that. But it was incredibly odd. And, you know, I think there are like with I mean, the whole film is about, you know, conspiracy theories. There's one way of looking at it and there's another way. You know, there's a very plausible explanation for it. But there's also something that seems a bit odd when you don't know the information of actually what happened. So, yeah. I'm curious about that money because he was actively moving the money out while he was alive, right? So if they're throwing their money in after he dies and he's not alive to take the money out, is that money just like in a in a hole? Like where is that money? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's <laughs> sort of yeah, no, totally. I think there were so there was some there was people on the blockchain were sort of saying the crypto investigators were sort of seeing that money was some money potentially was moving after he died, but I think hmm. actually that related to a mistake once the accountants got involved, once yep. the company had become insolvent and they lost some crypto. But in terms of that, I'm not sure because I think what was happening, because you know the exchange was still running, people were still able to take money out from that pot. But there were assets there. And so I think, but what happened was it all got divvied up. So the assets that were remaining in the exchange in terms, well, yeah, whatever cryptocurrency they had left, which I don't think was very much, but they had this frozen, they had, I think, 24 million or 26 million frozen by uh, the CIBC. That was unfrozen. And then all of the assets, the planes, the houses were liquidated. And that was ultimately redistributed to the contributors. So Taylor Monaghan did some digging into Quadriga's, quote, hot wallet and cold wallet. By the way, excellent job. Uh, explaining that. <laughs> what an exchange will do is have 5% or 10% of all of the money that they're holding in a hot wallet, and the rest is cold. And a cold wallet is an offline wallet. The hot wallet is like or your checkbook or your debit card, and the cold wallet is like the vault. Her, what was the significance of her findings? Because she basically figured out that like there was no real crypto happening here, right? Yeah. She was yeah. the first person to realize that basically like this whole story that, hey, the money's there, but it's locked away. There's some, that story wasn't right. You know, there was no money. So she's the first person like, hang on, there's no money in Quadriga's vault. It's not there. Where is it? And that was the first time I think that people had solid evidence that a crime had been committed or fraud had taken place. How is she the first person to figure this out when all of this stuff is public? I mean, it's all I mean, that's the point of blockchain, right? Is that it's all public. There was a lot of um, other people that were sort of doing stuff as well at the time. But I think because she was quite high profile um, and also a bit of a crypto genius, she very much was the sort of figurehead for that that kind of finding. Hmm. 
So the story takes a turn when we learn that Jerry had a silent partner named Michael Patron, also known as Omar Danani. He was a money launderer for an identity theft group. He popped up online to say that when he left Quadriga, everything was on the level. So we emailed Patron. And he told us that he had not had any level of involvement in Quadriga since he split with the company. He told us he left the company in 2016. I don't know if we fully believed Patron. Do you think he comes into this story with clean hands? Um, I, oh, that's so difficult. I don't know. Do you have an know. opinion? Like, I, I think, <laughs> I don't know. It's really hard to say. He says that he left. And actually, when you, when you, when we spoke to the Ontario Securities Commission, they very much said that it looked like the malfeasance and the bad stuff really started happening after 2016, after Patron had left. So it does look, and he's, he hasn't been arrested. He hasn't, you know, and uh, so I, it doesn't seem like at this point, anyone has anything on him. Um, right. But it's difficult, isn't it? If you've got this, this dodgy past, you know, so uh, that he couldn't really ever shake. And I don't know, it's such a murky world. Who really knows, you know, but that's kind yeah. of what's quite exciting about it, you know. And interesting about it. I love the scene, by the way, where they're comparing the photos. And as a viewer, I'm like, I don't know. Those two guys don't necessarily look alike. The pockmark, <laughs> the pockmark thing is incredible. It's like, oh, yeah. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Those are the same yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty incredible. No, I love that moment. It's great. <laughs> so the many victims of Quadriga form a support group on Telegram that eventually go from sharing information to becoming incredibly toxic, incredibly misogynistic, because, of course, we all know the Internet eventually does come to hate women. Yeah. Um, what do you think happened there? People were very angry, but I think it was I think it's I mean, yeah, it's just it's really depressing. But I think we felt like it was very important to show how horrible it is and how particularly, you know, horrible it was for Jennifer, you know, who, um, you know, I have a great deal of sympathy for, you know, I think, you know, we did, all did on the production, you know, she was, uh, you know, she was learning this stuff about her husband, you know, he had this kind of double online life that she didn't know about. I mean, that must have been terrible. And she'd lost someone that she loved. And, and it was, you know, they obviously hated the, you know, they were obviously no fans of Patrin or, um, or Cotton, but a lot of them really chose Jennifer to take out their aggression in such a vile, horrible way, um, which was, yeah, just horribly misogynistic and awful. And I thought that was a sort of, it was important to kind of show that and to show that that's, there is something in these online communities where that kind of thing can breed and it's not very nice. And that's ultimately where some of these, you know, crazy conspiracy theories can lead. Um, but yeah, um, it was, you know, it was a difficult choice in terms of like how much we showed of it. But um, we worked quite closely with Jennifer's sister, which was, mm -hmm. I thought, really important that we had. We couldn't get Jennifer. Yeah. We really wanted to. But uh, Kimberly was amazing in terms of building trust with Kimberly. And um, she agreed to take part and very much kind of tell Jennifer's side of the story, which was, I think, really crucial to the, to the film, you know, to have her represented in that way. I really just want to be an advocate for my sister because none of us have said anything. Her lawyers kept saying not to. Jenny had nobody, and I just have a lot that I want to say. She's beautiful. She's funny. She's always happy. Um, well, was. 
Yeah, I actually don't want to speculate much about Jennifer because we don't have her side of the story at all. I do think it's very interesting that no one knew that like in the public that Jerry was married, that no you know, people who knew him didn't know that, you know, and I think one of the reasons why there might be so much um focus on her and speculation about her is because people didn't know that she existed pretty much in his life, right? Absolutely. And she was very much, you know, she was a visible person left behind. You know, Patrick wasn't around. Jerry had, you know, had died. Um, and she, there was no one really else at Quadriga. And so she became just left holding the baby, really, in this complete mess of a company. So she she very much attracted that kind of attention. But it was, uh, you know, there's no justification for it at all. It was awful. And, you know, she had death threats. I mean, it's just like horrible. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, again, there were all these bizarre coincidences that you read in one way it was like my god she could have done this but you read them in another in the perfectly reasonable actual rational way that it happened you know like it's perfectly you know like i think they they um they signed their will you know a couple of weeks before they went on a honeymoon but you know it was their wedding i mean it's quite usual for people to 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 take those kind of precautions after they've been married so in one sense it looks really shady but in another it's perfectly justified which again is sort of the point of the film So I have to think that 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 if there were a murder suspect in this case, um, the police would be eager to exhume Jerry's body and exhume it. Or if there if people thought that he had, you know, faked his death that, or had stolen a hundred million dollars, they would be eager to exhume his body. But that has not happened, right? And it won't it won't happen. That hasn't happened for a long time. We thought it might. You know, and originally when we sort of were talking about, the, you know, the, the the film, we felt like that would be the end. You know, we would film that in some way that we'd incorporate that and it would be the big kind of, I guess, reveal, as it were. But it very quickly became clear that that um, that wasn't going to happen. And that, you know, I think there is still an ongoing FBI investigation. Um, I don't know where that is. It was always, you know, they won't comment on ongoing investigations. So no one really knows, like that side of things but no one's been brought to any kind of justice no one else um and yeah the rcmp have said that they have no interest in exhuming the body i think for them that's very clear that he he did die um yeah. uh but again that took a while to sort of unfold you know so there was all this kind of amazing speculation um and for a long time you know we thought like you know when, when we were sort of researching the story you know obviously it, it plays out and you know i know i'm giving away spoilers but you know hopefully people have seen the film already but um you know, there there was a sense of, okay, you know, all these things did point to maybe he could. It's quite plausible that he did fake his own death. But it was always slightly odd that Jennifer had been left to hold the baby. You know, she was there. Like, why didn't they run off together? So yeah. whatever theory you always had, there was always in the back of your mind some other question. But then it was like, okay, well, she was behaving oddly. Well, did she do something weird? You know, so there, you could totally see how people got drawn into that. And also, yeah. if you've lost half a million dollars, you're desperate to believe that this guy's alive because if he's alive you can get your money back potentially right or bring him to justice so right but doesn't the blockchain stuff show that he was a bad trader and actually lost that money that he stole i mean that's what it looked like to me right yeah he did eventually eventually once they found that out then they realized like well some of them i think realized that they they weren't gonna get their money back um yeah so yes ultimately it did So Andrew Wagner makes the point that no amount of evidence will be enough to convince victims or these people on the Internet that Jerry died of natural causes and simply took the passwords to his grave. If we exhume Jerry's body right now, they will claim that's not his real body. That's what they'll do, I promise you. 
If you DNA test the body, then they'll say the DNA test is fake. Yes, they will. They'll claim the DNA tester is part of the conspiracy. What do you think? Do you think these folks will ever be convinced? I think there are going to be some people... No. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't want to speak to the individual characters in the story, but just looking at some of the comments <laughs> uh, you know, in reaction to the film, it does feel like people still believe that he is out there somewhere. And I think... It's very, yeah, I don't know if people will ever be convinced when you're kind of in that conspiracy mindset. There's always some other thing you can say to justify your conspiracy, I think. So yeah. no, I don't, I don't think people will necessarily ever be satisfied. Do you think the passwords will ever be found? I don't know. No, I, no, I don't think they will. No, no, I think it's all, I think it's all gone. I think that's it. I think they've, I think, you know, yeah, no, I, 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 I sadly, I think they're, um, People just got very badly caught out. We've talked about a few takeaways here, but essentially people hoping to get rich invested huge amounts of money in unregulated securities in an exchange where uh, the keys were controlled by one man. Um, are there any other other morals of the story that you're hoping viewers will take away from your film? I think, yeah, I think like the idea of trying to get rich quick, I think believing in conspiracy theories is a dangerous road to go down. I mean, that, that, I think that's it. And I think, you know, ultimately the, the, the internet is, in a way, I've always saw this film as like a bit of a story of our times. You know, people trying to get rich quick without really doing that much and being rewarded for that in some way. And, and this kind of fake news conspiratorial world that thrives online. And I think you have to be wary of both those things. Well, the film is Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King. Luke Sewell, thank you so much for talking to me about it. I can't wait to see what you make next. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Luke Sewell. What do you think about Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King? Do you think Jerry's out there somewhere living off missing millions of dollars? Do you want to see more people wear those fox masks during anonymous interviews? Tell me in a tweet because I kind of dug it. You can reach me at Reb Lavoie. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. And make sure to subscribe to the show so you can get all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 